0: The great summary of what Jesus did as we celebrate his resurrection this morning, he left his first followers wanting more. I hope that by the time we're done looking at today's passage over the next 20, 25 minutes or so, we will be wanting more too. Because the incredible event that we celebrate this morning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is all about that more. Today's passage is is part of a letter that the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write to a group of followers of Jesus who lived in the Greek city of Corinth uh, between 40 and 50 A.D. And this community was giving Paul a run for his money. He was charged with overseeing them, with providing them with some leadership from a distance, partly through letters that he wrote to them. And one of the challenges that Paul faced with this community was the weird belief that they had developed that there would be no resurrection. You may know that one of the cardinal beliefs for those who follow Jesus and one of our great hopes and comforts in this life is that this life is not the end of life. That there is a new life to come, a day in the future when Jesus Christ returns to this earth, raises up his followers from the dead to everlasting life. And we live with Christ in a new heavens and a new earth forever and ever. Well, the Corinthians decided they did not believe this. Not because they were cynics or that they doubted their miraculous, but just the opposite. The Corinthians were actually so super spiritual that they thought a future resurrection wasn't necessary. Because they were already enjoying a spiritual out-of-the-body experience now. This might seem strange to us who live in a secular, materialistic age, but evidently in this community, there were many who had powerful spiritual experiences, powerful times of worship and communion with God, which just so elevated their hearts to almost euphoric levels. And they said, you know, we're good, thank you very much. We've already arrived spiritually. In fact, we figure we're more spiritual than anyone else around, and we don't need That resurrection stuff that some of you look forward to. Well, Paul, in our passage this morning, is taking on their view. He's arguing against it, saying, I'm so glad that you're having powerful spiritual experiences. How wonderful for you. But guess what? There is more. There's better to come. One day there will be resurrection to life. So how does Paul make this case? What does he cite as proof of this future resurrection? Well, it's what we celebrate this morning. It's the fact that Jesus Christ has risen. As Paul summarizes it in verses three to five, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Christ was raised on the third day after he died, Paul says. And because Christ has been raised, Paul reasons, resurrection is indeed possible. And not only is it possible, but it is guaranteed for all who follow Christ. That's what Paul is contending in our passage this morning, verse 20. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ, Paul says, is the first fruits of those who have died. And the fact that Christ has been raised means his followers will be raised as well. And to understand what Paul's arguing here, it's key that we understand this word first fruits. What are first fruits? Well, every spring I plant a garden in our backyard. And it starts with a lot of digging. I've got to turn over every square inch of the soil with a spade. Then I buy seeds and seedlings and I plant them. I've got to plant them at the right time, the right depth, the right spacing from one another. Then I have to keep my eye out around here for a late frost and run out and cover the plants late at night if there's a threat of frost. Then I have to water them. I have to weed them. And I hope pests don't get at them. And then all through the summer, they grow. Sometimes some of them die. They get eaten by uh, animals or insects. They might develop a fungus or a rot from time to time. But often we do get a decent harvest. We especially look forward to the tomatoes. Right? They taste so much better than the ones in the store. And what a day when those first few tomatoes are ripe. And we bring them into the house. We wash them off. We cut them up into a salad or onto a sandwich. They're so good. And those are the first fruits. Now, let's say you're a farmer like most people were until the 1800s. There was great significance to the first fruits. The first fruits brought great anticipation and even celebration because when the first fruits were ripe, you were like, yeah, harvest season has arrived. All of our hard work has paid off. The harvest is coming. Our pantry will be full. Our barns will be full. And we'll have something to sell at market and then we'll get paid. Because farmers only get paid once a year. Not twice a month like most of us. They only get paid at harvest time. And so the first fruits are the beginning of all those good things that they're looking forward to. More than the beginning, the first fruits also represent the whole harvest. In the Old Testament of the Bible, people offered the first fruits to God because the first fruits represented the whole harvest. It's kind of like if you're having a party with a bunch of six year olds and and you pull out the ice cream and you start dishing it out and you've got the the syrup on the table and the little marshmallows and M&M's and stuff. And they're so excited for Sundays. Right. And, And and you dish out the first. Scooping into the bowl and who wants it? Everyone. Right. There's something special about the first. And so to honor God, people gave God the first. That's the first fruits. It's. It's the anticipation, the the first evidence, even the guarantee of the good things that are coming. And here in our passage, Paul says that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, when Christ rose from the dead, he was the first fruits, the anticipation, the representation, the guarantee of Everyone else who follows Christ, who will also be raised from the dead. Because Christ has been raised, all who follow him will be raised as well. He's the firstfruits. But each in turn, Paul says, verse 23, Christ, the firstfruits. Then when he comes, when he comes back, those who belong to him. And so here is the first more that we celebrate at Easter. As we remember that Christ rose from the dead, we celebrate the first fruits, knowing that when Christ returns, we who follow Christ will also be raised just like him. In verses 21 to 22, Paul elaborates. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. One man, one person can have a huge impact, a huge effect on others. Ladies, think of the, the suffragettes, those, those brave, determined women who labored, who sacrificed so that you could have the right to vote and growing equality in this country. Your life, your experience as a woman has been impacted by theirs. Theirs. Or think of another impactful person like Winston Churchill and his dogged, courageous determination to withstand the aggressions of Nazism and fascism. Winston Churchill, without his leadership, who knows what kind of world we might live in today? He also had a huge impact on, on the world that we experience today. Well, one man named Adam, who Paul mentions was another such person who had a huge impact on all of those who came after him. Adam is notorious in the biblical story for setting humanity on the course of death. Rebelling against God, bringing sin and trouble and corruption into this world. And so setting humanity on a path marked by death where where death is inevitable for every human being. That's the world we live in. It's a world characterized by Murphy's Law very often, right? Where sometimes it seems like anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Things just tend toward disorder and toward decay. Our bodies break down. They get sick. Eventually, they die. And so it's a constant struggle for us. It's constant work to keep the world from running down toward chaos, And we spend billions and billions each year on our own health, trying to stave off the downward drag of our bodies towards sickness and death. That's the world that we're all born into. It's Adam's world. That's the existence we all inherited thanks to a man named Adam. But guess what? There's good news. Christ is risen. Another man. A new man, even more influential than Adam. Has risen from the dead, has defeated death. And because he rose the first fruits, another world, a new world, a new possibility has begun to exist alongside the old world of Adam. A new possibility has opened up to us to no longer be limited and defined by the death that Adam brought into the old world. And eventually, Christ's new world of life will overwhelm. And displace the old world. The new world is coming. The more is coming. Because the first fruits have already arrived. Christ has already been raised from the dead. Christ rose from the grave. Conquered death. Overcame death. Opening the way to a new world. How did he do it? Well, author James Hewitt tells the story of a little boy and his father who were driving down a country road one beautiful spring afternoon, something we're all looking forward to in just a few weeks now. Suddenly, out of nowhere, though, a bee flew into the car window, and this little boy was deathly allergic to bee stings. And so he became petrified with his bee buzzing in the car. Well, his father quickly reached out, grabbed the bee with his hand, squeezed it in his hand, and then released and as soon as he let it go, the, the, the bee was kind of spinning and buzzing, and, and the young son became frantic again. And his father saw the, in the rearview mirror the son's panic-stricken face. And once again, the father reached out his hand, this time to show his son, that there, still stuck in his skin, was the stinger of the bee. You see this, he said to his son? You don't need to be afraid anymore. I've taken the sting for you. And this is what Jesus has done for us. Christ faced death for us. That's what we remembered on Friday. Good Friday. He absorbed it and he defeated it. And by his victory, we are saved from the sin that Adam led into the world and the death which followed that sin. A little later in our passage, down in verse 55, if we were to keep reading, Paul exclaims, Where, O death, is your sting? Christ has taken the sting for us. He has risen. Fear is gone. New life is ours. Eternal life. Resurrection life. This is the more that Jesus' resurrection opens up to us. And those who follow Christ, we are being led by Christ into this new world, free of the sting of death. Well, Then in the rest of our passage, Paul tells us more about this more. Verse 24. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God, the father or king hands over the kingdom to God, the father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Here, Paul is describing the process by which the old world of Adam, the age characterized by death, is coming to an end and is being displaced and supplanted by the new world of Christ, the world characterized by life. Not only will this happen one day in the future when Christ returns, but it has already begun to happen now. But how is it happening? How does the old world of Adam give way To the new world of Christ. Paul says, verse 24, it happens as Christ destroys all dominion, authority, and power. Or as Paul puts it in verse 25, all of his enemies. What is Paul talking about? What dominion? What authorities? What powers? What enemies? Well, these are every power, every influence, which stand on the side of Adam's old world. Of sin and of death. Be they spiritual forces or human forces. Everything which stands on the side of oppression, the side of enslavement, the side of bondage, addiction and dysfunction, on the side of discouragement, despair and depression, on the side of abuse, hate, violence. And there are still plenty of these forces, many of these enemies in the world, right? Political and geopolitical forces, systemic forces of racism and oppression and cyclical poverty, internal forces of self-doubt and addiction and the lies that we tell ourselves and the spiritual forces which lie behind many of these. Many enemies, many dominions, many authorities and powers still in the world. But here's what Paul tells us about them. They are on the way out. They are on the way out. And it's just a matter of time until they are utterly defeated. Verse 25 again. For Christ must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Because the new world of which Christ is the first fruits is coming. The world, the resurrection world that Christ entered and has opened up to us. It is a world without sin, without oppression, without death. Christ has already begun bringing this new world into being to replace the old world of Adam. And Christ will keep at it until the forces of the old world are completely defeated. So question, how does Christ do this? Well, he does it largely through his people. His hands and feet. Those committed to letting him change them, first of all, and then through them to change the world as we come to realize and to believe and to taste the new life that Christ offers, this new world that we're bound for, as we find our own freedom from the enemies of sin and bondage and death, and as we then live to help others defeat those enemies as well in their lives and the lives of those around them. This has been the story of God's people all through the ages. Now, certainly there are many dark chapters along the way where God's people have not lived up to their identity or their calling. And there are plenty of enemies still afoot. But think of all that has been accomplished so far. The American historian Kenneth Scott Lauderette, famous for his seven-volume work on the, uh, the expansion of Christianity. You've got to really love history to read a seven-volume work. But he, he wrote this massive work and he concludes that great work like this. He says, no life ever lived on this planet has been so influential in the affairs of men as that of Christ. From that brief life and its apparent frustration has flowed a more powerful force for the triumphal waging of man's long battle than any other ever known by the human race. Through it, millions of people have had their inner conflicts resolved. Through it, hundreds of millions have been lifted from illiteracy and ignorance. And have been placed upon the road of growing intellectual freedom. And control over the physical environment. It has done more to allay the physical ills of disease and famine. Than any other impulse. And it has emancipated millions from chattel slavery. And millions of others from thraldom to vice. It has protected tens of millions from exploitation by their fellows. And it has been the most fruitful source of movement to lessen of movements. To lessen the horrors of war and to put the relations of men and nations on the basis of justice and peace. Christ is risen and now he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And because he is risen, there is more. Christ offers more. So let me ask you this morning. Do you want more? Are you hungry for more? Because Christ has risen, he is the first fruits. He is the first fruits of more. If you want more, I want to invite you, I want to invite us to ask God for more this morning. And as a symbol of receiving more from God, the more that Christ offers, we have these flower bulbs. They're, they're a perfect symbol of more, right? They're, they're kind of dirty. That's why they're in a nice plastic bag. They're kind of ugly in a way, but but bound up, hidden within them is the promise and the power of more. More life, more hope, more beauty. In a minute, we'll invite you to to come and to take a bulb um, as a as a prayer, asking God for more. But first, let's turn together to this table. I'll invite the servers to come forward. those who follow Jesus Christ, who have chosen to turn their backs on the way began that was begun by Adam, and uh, to follow in the new way, led by Christ, this table is a reminder, and it's a reorientation of that to that decision that we've made. This table reminds us of, of the offer of mercy, of the offer of grace that Christ has extended to us, and how he took the sting of sin. He took the sting of death for us. The bread that, that we share here reminds us of, of Christ's body. Broken in suffering and death. For when Christ gave us this meal on the night before he was betrayed, he, he took the bread and he broke it. He gave thanks for it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The cup... Reminds us of Christ's blood shed in death for the forgiveness of our sins, fully absorbing the sting of sin and death into himself as Christ died for our sins. And so at that same meal where he broke the bread at the end of it, he took the cup and he said, this cup is, is a new covenant, a new commitment, a new relationship between me and you poured out for your sins for whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you remember and you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So to take this bread and to, to take this cup is, is an expression of faith. It's one thing to look at it. It's another thing to take it for ourselves, to take it, to receive it, to nourish ourselves on it is an expression of, of faith. And it's an act of covenant and commitment that we trust and that we follow Christ personally. And so it's not for everyone. It's rather for those who are committed to putting their trust in Christ than to living their life in obedience to him. If that's not where you're at in your spiritual journey, we welcome you to use these next few minutes at your seat as a time of quiet reflection as you think about what Easter means to you. Or, of course, you're invited to, to come forward as is everyone and to receive... Um, the more that we talked about, one of these bulbs as a reminder and a prayer to God for Christ to give you more. So as we as we come to take get the bulbs, as we come to enjoy this meal together, um, for the sake of traffic flow, let me give you a few directions. Um, we're going to use this aisle to your right um, for coming forward, and we're going to use this aisle to your left for going backwards. And um, so that we don't jam up and come to a a gridlock halt, I'm going to ask the first few rows to come first and then you who are behind as as you sense that there's room for you step out into the aisle and you can come as well. And so we'll sort of work our way back. We'll also probably, for those of you who are coming out this side, you probably want to loop the, um, the line out into the hallway to give ourselves some extra room and hopefully we won't bog down and we can keep things coming. Would you join me in prayer as we prepare to receive this meal? Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for opening up the way to so much more. And we who come every week and we we claim to believe in you and in this more, we still fall so short in experiencing and sharing just how much of it is available. And so I pray that you give us more this morning. And God, for those of us who don't normally come to church and we have a vague idea of who Jesus is, but he hasn't transformed our lives, I pray that they might begin to experience that more in a new, real way, perhaps for the first time this morning. Thank you for this meal, which reminds us of Jesus. Thank you for the more represented in the bulbs, which you offer to us through Jesus. Amen.